Well, good morning. I know Pete has introduced me as Graeme Kerr, but I just thought I'd let you know I'm the husband of Robin. She's the, uh, she's the women's deacon and well-known in the church. We joined the Project Church in uh, May last year online and then came along when it first opened up and it's been a great blessing to us to be part of the fellowship here. Uh, Robin and I have been serving the Lord since we were married and felt the call of God to full-time service quite early in our married life and we have imperfectly served the purposes of God by his grace to the best of our ability with the understanding that we had at any given time. We reject the notion, however, of retirement and believe we should serve the purposes of God with the strength that God provides, however long that might be. And one of my favourite passages, which actually Pete referred to this morning, is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 9 to 11, which says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, and each of you should use whatever gifts that you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. 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 Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word again this morning. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will hover over this place and bring to our hearts and minds those things which we need to apply and to remember. We pray that your word will find root in our hearts and that you will be glorified in all that we say and all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Christine Dillon wrote a book called Telling the Gospel Through Stories and she says this. She said, It is an age when prepackaged gospel formulas leave people cold. Well told Bible stories can be used profitably and powerfully by God to touch people's hearts and draw them to Himself. After ministry in both Western and non Western contexts, church planter Christine Dillon has discovered that Bible storytelling is far more effective than most other forms of apologetic and evangelistic presentation. So this morning, I really want to talk about telling stories. You'll forgive me if I get a bit disjointed with all this technology. If we know Jesus, we all have an important story to tell. Every one of us. There's no more important story than the story of Jesus 
interacting with our lives from a personal perspective. We were at a funeral on Thursday in Brisbane and I'd known this lady, she was 72 when she passed away, I'd known her briefly uh, as a young pastor in Dolby and then they moved out of town and I just knew that she was unwell most of her life and over the last five years she'd suffered a number of strokes and went to be with the Lord. But in her eulogy it was uh, so encouraging to hear about how she had served the Lord right through to the end even in the midst of her illness. Even in the midst of her illness she had been to the best of her ability conducting ladies Bible study groups and she'd been writing birthday cards to every member of her church constantly for many many years right up until the end and so I guess the question that came to my mind once I sat in there is what are people going to say about me (laughs) what's my story going to be what will be my legacy so our stories are set though within the context of history which is an overarching story of God's story, really. His story, history, you've probably heard it many times before. And our stories are within that framework. And even the stories that we're going to be reading today are within that context. And that context is the story of creation and then the rebelliousness of mankind and the story of God's love being revealed to us. How he revealed himself in Jesus Christ and the story of how Jesus suffered the consequences of our sin and gave his life as a ransom for many and will in the future restore shalom. Much of that story is found in the Bible in 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years. Much of these writings are narrative or stories. And it's a lot easier when we come across those passages in the Bible, we can sort of get lost in the stories. And when it's just a whole lot of doctrine, it makes it harder, doesn't it? So stories are important. The church, with all its faults and failures, is the continuation of God's story in time today we are part of that story we are part of the unfolding story of Acts 29 (laughs) how many people when you heard about Acts 29 actually looked it up (laughs) it isn't there I looked But our sermon outline today is is really the narrative of God's story and Dr. Luke is writing the story of the early church, the book of Acts of the Apostles. And there are many stories within this book and some are more detailed than others. This morning I've been given the task to look at Acts chapter 13 verse 13 to 52. And so we're going to look at that in three different points. I've been going to the uh, preacher training class and listening and I've decided that I better only have three points this morning. 
The first of those is God's plan is working out through the stories. And then secondly, we look at Jesus as the greatest story that's ever told. And then it's our turn to live a story. So within that context, we shall have a look at this morning's passage. It's set within the context of the Mediterranean Sea. We pick up Luke's story after the account of what happened in Antioch, Syria and in Cyprus. Jaden talked about that last week. And uh, he was saying that the church in Antioch wasn't stuck on the crease. Do you remember that? That was a significant statement for me. I thought that was a really good illustration. They weren't stuck on the crease and they sent out their A-team, their test team really, under the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the world. And Luke sets the scene and we find Paul and Barnabas and the team minus John Mark in Antioch in Pisidia. And I've just put that map up there just so that you've got some idea because, you know, you could be confused about being in Antioch because there are two. There is one in Syria and you'll notice that they left Antioch in Syria and they went to Cyprus, then to Pamphylia and then up to Antioch, which is in Turkey today. Or I'm not sure that Antioch's still there. Probably if you dig deep enough, you'll find it. But that's what we're talking about. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so the Apostle Paul began to say it. He said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. It's important that we listen, isn't it? Not to me, but to what God is saying. It's important to listen to God because there is no more important voice in the universe than the voice of God. The God of He went on to reiterate, really, uh, and demonstrate the involvement of God through history. I think it's important for us to continue to remember the involvement of God through history and that it's, it is God's uh, plan and nothing happens in this universe that God isn't aware of or doesn't have the ability to control. So he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great. What I want you to sort of look at, I've highlighted uh, on this passage various parts that emphasize the fact that God is in control. God is sovereign. He said the God of this people chose our fathers and made the people great. 
He was the one who led them out of Egypt. He was the one who put up with them, says put up with their problems, I guess, in the desert for 40 years. He gave them the land. Even though they were the ones that had to go into battle and march around Jericho and then fight to take over the land itself, it was God behind that whole situation who gave it to them. Without God, they would have had no inheritance. After 450 years, he gave them judges. Then he gave them a king against his better judgment. And so he gave them Saul and then he raised up David. And the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to talk about David in this passage and his, uh, I guess, a lot of people thought David uh, was the greatest. In fact, if you look up David, the King David, you would see that he was Israel's greatest king, according to the Jew. We know better, but they thought that. He said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will, all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Now, Paul uh, outlines uh, God's opinion of David in this passage. He said, God was a man after his own heart that would do all his will. But the significant thing I I noticed about this is that he served the purposes of God and then he died. Now that'll be our experience too. We'll serve the purposes of God, Lord willing, by his grace, and then we'll die. The funeral on Thursday was nothing surprising because everybody has an appointment with one sometime. And uh, this morning I was showing somebody my finger that had decided it wasn't going to work. And it reminded me that death wasn't that far away. (laughs) We're all beginning to die. But he served the purposes of God and then he died. What a great epitaph. Now on the tombstone. They served the purposes of God and then died. What more could you say that your children could come and have a look at the tombstone? Well, so that's a fantastic tombstone. That's a fantastic epitaph. I'm really taken with that passage. And in spite of the fact that he was considered the greatest king of Israel, ever had compared with Jesus he pales into insignificance as we all do the apostle Paul rehearsed the story of God's plan for humanity God had a plan before the foundation of the world it didn't take him by surprise God is sovereign over the history of mankind and the world. God raised up a nation of Israel to be the cradle 
and the context in which he would reveal himself progressively to humanity. That was his decision. God demonstrated his love to us by coming and dying our death. And God came in the person of the Holy Spirit to be with us and Jesus will return and restore all things. That's God's plan. And we live in the context of that plan. But Jesus is the greatest story that's ever told. In fact, they made a movie like that, didn't they? Greatest story ever told. You see it at Easter sometimes. It's a story about Jesus. David is the representative in this uh, situation of all humanity in that we will all see corruption. But Jesus is different in that he did not see corruption. And Paul makes a lot about this. He talks a lot about it. In fact, Paul rehearses the story of the Jewish leaders and their treatment of Jesus in Jerusalem. He said, brothers, sons of the families of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognise him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And so that was the difference between the great King David and the great King Jesus. David saw corruption. Jesus did not. And for many days he appeared to those who'd come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses and to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And this is the message of the Apostle Paul, not just here in Antioch, but wherever he went, was that Jesus came, Jesus was crucified, but Jesus did not see corruption. Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive forevermore. Of course, he needed to do a little bit of apologetics with the Jews. Uh, They're really quick to believe, aren't they? Like us. He said, he showed them from the Psalms that Jesus was the son. You are my son and today I have begotten you. And then in verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says in also another Psalm, I will not let my holy one see corruption. So this was not something new. It was just something they didn't understand. It was a mystery that was hidden in many ways. So David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. 
But he who God raised up did not see corruption. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I think we've, I'm probably one slide behind, aren't I? Never mind. We'll catch up. You know, if Jesus had not risen from the grave, then our faith is in vain. We might as well all go home. Because that's uh, the key factor, the key difference between Jesus and mankind, apart from the fact that he lived a sinless life. He rose from the dead and is alive today. Jesus the Messiah is superior to David in every way. I don't know whether the apostle uh, spoke to the people in Antioch further than what we read from Luke. More than likely he did. He probably said a whole lot more. Uh, and we just get the snippets, you know, along from the story. That often happens with storytelling, doesn't it? You don't give all the detail. But I was thinking, well, what would he have said more? And my mind went to Colossians. Because whenever he was in Colossae, he certainly said this. He wrote to them and said this. And he was talking about Jesus and he was talking about how great he was. And I was reading in uh, John Piper's book that the preacher class is using at the moment. When you preach, you don't exalt Jesus, then you haven't done a very good job. And so I thought, well, I better make sure that I do that. And so in Colossians it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. When it talks about firstborn, he means that he's the preeminent one. He's the most important one. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. At any moment that if Jesus let go all things, the universe would fly to pieces. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's our head. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything that he might have the preeminence, because he is God. He is God and he has come in human form. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. His story was different to our story in that he is God and that he lived a sinless life and God raised him up and he did not see corruption. Jesus is the greatest. I could show my age and say, well, Muhammad Ali was not the greatest. 
Jesus is the greatest. In this passage, you know, in, in life he demonstrated who he was by the things that he said and by the things that he did, the miracles he performed, the authority in which he spoke. He claimed to be God and he was crucified for that claim. That's the main reason the Jews crucified Jesus, because he claimed to be God. He proved that he was God by rising from the dead. He was victorious over the grave and has defeated the enemy death. And so at that funeral on Thursday, they were able to say that Colleen was her name. Is no longer in this tomb. That's just the remains. She's with Jesus. Because he lives, we live. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. He's seated at the right hand of God and he's our great high priest. And that's something else that the Apostle Paul may well have told the people that were in that area, particularly the Jews, because there was a letter written to the Jews called the Hebrews or Hebrews Gospel or Book of Hebrews. And right at the beginning of Hebrews, we see that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is God, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firm to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This story is different and greater because of who he is. God himself manifest in human form an accessible Merciful, gracious God, a God who understands us and a God who invites us to come closer. I wonder if you are close to God today. I wonder if you need to come closer. Well, Jesus is a great high priest who is God and invites you to come closer. You don't have to be afraid of him because he loves you and gave his life for you. I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. For David, after he'd served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
I just check, see where I am here? So the Apostle Paul went on, and the, uh, he went on to preach and talk to the people, and everybody was really, really impressed. They said, well, come again next week, because they wanted to hear more. And so he went again next week. And what, what happened next week? He preached the gospel again. But what happened? There were some people who were impressed and there were some people who were not. There were some people who were very glad to see Paul and Barnabas again and hear what they had to say. And, but there were others who had different attitudes altogether. And he came and they got jealous. Why did they get jealous? Because they saw the crowds. Their motives were not pure. They were really concerned about their own popularity and their own authority and what people did that they told them to do. But then Paul comes along with a message which is different. So they got a bit of opposition. And that opposition really wasn't very helpful. They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul had spoken and they reviled him. And Paul says, well, look, if that's the way you feel, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. Because really God has commissioned me to talk to the Gentiles. And I'm not sure which slide I'm up to here. But God has made Paul a light for the Gentiles. And so he came out from Antioch because they were really commissioned to go to the Gentiles. They were commissioned to go into um, the Mediterranean region and talk to people about the gospel. They were serving the purposes of God. David served the purposes of God in his generation. But the mission team were now serving the purposes of God in their generation. And I guess the question to us is that are we serving the purposes of God in our generation? Is that our primary focus for life? When Paul was on the road to Damascus, He was blinded and he was visited by Ananias and Ananias brought a message to God and said, I've made you a light unto the Gentiles. They were commissioned by the Antioch church to go to the Gentiles. Barnabas and Saul had a special work that they were called to do. After they'd fasted and prayed, the men laid hands on them and they sent them away. And in verse 48, it says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed the word that they brought to him, that he brought to them. But Paul was not the only commissioned light. 
Jesus said in, in John chapter 8 and verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. And he was. And he is. But he also said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14 to 16, he said, you, you are the light of the world. And Pete spoke about this some weeks ago as we reflect the light that Jesus is. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, we read these words. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. The gospel that displays the glory of Jesus Christ. Their minds are blinded. He is the image of the invisible God and they cannot see it. He said, but for what we preach is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So Paul had been commissioned to be a light unto the Gentiles. But Jesus had commissioned all of us to be a light unto the world. And he said nobody should have a light that's under a bushel but mounted up on a hill so that everybody can see it. And we would say that David shone his light in his generation. He fulfilled the purposes of God in his generation. This mission team with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were serving the purposes of God in their generation. And the world is stumbling around in the dark and it's our responsibility to bring the light to shine on their darkened hearts. Sometimes that will be met with acceptance like the Apostle Paul and his team experienced. Other times it will be met with strong opposition. We've had a little bit to do with the country of Nepal. And when we first went there in 2008, the place was in chaos because they'd just come out of uh, one form of, of um, government and they were coming into a new democratic system. So there weren't too many laws and Everybody was jostling for power and so no one was concerned too much about the Christians sharing the gospel. And it was like stepping into the book of Acts and people were being saved by the thousands. And God was at work in that country in an unbelievable way. But you know what happens? As the church begins to grow and becomes more popular and more influential, the government a Hindu government, becomes very uneasy and so they begin to make laws. And now there's an anti-conversion law in Nepal. It doesn't stop the church, they still preach the gospel. But that's normal 
We see that with the Apostle Paul. And we see that in various places in the world where the gospel is growing and people are being saved, then the opposition will come. But not only in the world, that happens to us as well. When the blessings come, then look out. (laughs) There's always a problem around the corner. But as we were reminded this morning of uh, Pete reading that psalm that you know, the, the righteous man is not troubled by the problems. And so we should not be discouraged. But like these men who were going out into this foreign country to share their faith, when they encountered opposition, then they shook off the dust from their feet and were filled with joy and moved on. So we need to take our opportunity in our generation to tell the story of what Jesus means to us. Now, I want to um, play a clip by John Piper. It's quite an old one. He's quite a young man in this. And um, I think if I press this, it should work. Let's see what happens. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. Which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference. Because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, Have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. 
And you don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. And that's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way. Over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick, in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, 
a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells. As the last chapter, before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. The story that emerged very early in the passage that we read could easily be overlooked as Luke only gives an account of passing of John Mark leaving the mission team to return to Jerusalem. Luke 9, uh, 62 in the NIV says, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So you can understand why the Apostle Paul was a little bit miffed (laughs) by the fact that young John had gone home to mum. He seemed to fail the test and he quit the team in Cyprus and went home. And his departure from the team obviously did not go down well with the Apostle Paul and it eventually caused a rift between Paul and Barnabas. Many of you would know that. But cousin Barnabas saw the potential in Mark and nurtured him to profitability. He was later recognised by Paul as a profitable servant of the Lord in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He became well regarded by Peter and as the writer of the Gospel of Mark being scribe for what scholars believe is Peter's account of the life of Jesus. And today you could be a Barnabas and you could be encouraging some young brother or sister or not even young. Not to give up when the going gets tough. But to give your best and not to lose heart. Mark became a profitable servant of the Lord. Or you could be like the Apostle Paul who and the Apostle Peter, and so many others, and those two ladies that you heard about in the, in the video clip, you could give your life for the Lord. My question is, what will our legacy be? What will be on our tombstone? What will be our epitaph? Will it be... A, They served the purposes of God in their generation. 
Or will it be they served themselves in their generation? Members of the Project Church served the purposes of God in their generation. That's a good one, isn't it? Is that our heart's desire? To be like David? Because of what Jesus has done and because of who he is? And because God is in control? There's no better thing to do than serve his purposes in our generation. So like the preacher, I would say, don't waste your life, no matter how old you are. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, his intention was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That's our responsibility. And there's no retirement. The band could come up if they would like. And the question is for each one of us today, are we, like John Mark, are we discouraged? Do we need encouragement? Are you an encourager? Will you have a reputation or a legacy like Barnabas that says, well, they were the sons or daughters of encouragement? Will you have a legacy like David who said he served the purposes of God in his generation? I pray that that will be my legacy and my eulogy.